BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast family. This week's show is brought to you by Don't Look Up, the new climate change comedy from the stars who live like there's no tomorrow, but they insist we do just the opposite. I'm jazzed to share my conversation with the great Leonard Maltin this week. He's a true movie buff and a critic who stays above the political fray. That is not easy these days. His new memoir is Starstruck, brimming with really great stories about the biggest Hollywood stars of all time. If you love the golden age of Hollywood, you're going to treasure Starstruck. We'll also hear from Steven Cruiser. He's a right-leaning comedian prepping his unwoke comedy tour for 2022. Can't wait for that. He's got some pretty cool observations about comedy, cancel culture, and a lot more. But I thought I'd start off this week's show with a confession. For years, my love of the Monkees, the 60s-era rock band, it felt like kind of a guilty pleasure. It's like admitting you're a Carpenters fan. You don't do that unless to, like, to your very closest friends, the, the people who won't judge you too badly. Now, they called the Monkees the Prefab Four back in the day, and they were really dismissed at the time and over the years as being manufactured, which is true, and also being subpar compared to the Beatles. Well, who wouldn't fall into that category? But if you listen to their songs like Pleasant Valley Sunday, which is just a perfect pop ditty that hasn't aged a minute, there are so many great songs in their catalog, and they really deserve much more respect than they've ever gotten then or now. Now, as a boy, I fell in love with the show. Now, I wasn't old enough to watch the shows originally. That was in the late 60s. I was kind of an uh, infant at best. But uh, I did catch up with their reruns, and I just absolutely loved the, the songs, the humor, the silliness, the way they broke the fourth wall all the time. That was really kind of innovative back in the day. Now, the problem, though, is that if I wanted to get those records, I just couldn't. Now, I, I'm going to guess that they were out of print back then. This is the uh, mid-1970s or so. And I just didn't know where to find them. They weren't in the record shop. So I would scour flea market after flea market, garage sale after garage sale, desperate to find any kind of monkeys record. As it turns out, my very first monkeys album was from a friend of my mom's. She found it at a flea market, knew I liked the band, brought it home for me. I was ecstatic. It was amazing. Now, of course, today they've been rerunning the old albums. They've been repackaging them. And also, you just go on eBay and maybe find some older stuff. It's just easier now. But back then... My analog youth, none of that was an option. And then the TV programmers who run the local networks, run the national networks, they kind of threw me a curveball. They stopped showing the Monkees TV show. Gone. And then, after a while, I started getting the TV guide every week and like flipping through it page after page, thinking, okay, is the show back? Is there a new network that's going to carry it? When is my show coming back on TV? And I waited and I waited and it didn't come back. And then MTV happened. They made video music cool. And then they embraced the Monkees. I think it was around 1986, they had a Monkees marathon. They showed every one of the shows, 58 episodes, back to back to back to back. So I had to do something. I bought a blank tape, actually a bunch of blank VHS tapes, popped it into my VCR, and recorded the marathon four hours at a time. Now that was easy for a while, but then bedtime happened, and I'm thinking, well... 
I can't screw up. I can't miss out. So I set my alarm for four hours. I'd sleep in four-hour increments that night, and I'd put in the new tape, hit record, and go back to bed. I didn't want to be held hostage by the TV programmers. They would say, when I could and couldn't watch the show. So I bring all this up because this week, Michael Nesmith passed away. He was the guy in the wool hat and the monkeys. He was 78 years old and just finished what would be his final tour with Mickey Dolenz, the other surviving monkey member. Now, I think people dismiss the monkeys. I think people dismiss Michael Nesmith at times as just being one of this, sort of part of this pre-manufactured band, but he was much more than that. He wrote a lot of great songs. He also wrote songs for other people. Different drum from uh, that uh, sung by Linda Ronstadt, made famous by her. He wrote it. Some of the best Monkees songs he wrote as well. He kind of was part of the alt-country movement before it was a thing back in the 70s. And then there was Michael Nesmith in Elephant Parts. It was kind of a wacky VHS production. But when you look at it, you think, wow, that looks a lot like MTV. So I think what his work was there plus what he did with the Monkees back in the late 1960s, which was kind of a piggybacking of what the Beatles did with the kind of those wacky uh, video-like presentations where the boys were running around, the girls were chasing them. That really was sort of the, the dawn of MTV-style programming, and Michael Nesbitt was a significant part of it. Of course, to me, he was a monkey first and foremost, and I really miss him. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. take this week is The Power of the Dog. Now, I usually save this spot for older films, more obscure titles, things maybe you haven't heard of before, but I want to make an exception here for a couple of reasons. One is The Power of the Dog is getting a bunch of great reviews. It's in the Oscar buzz conversation, as it happens this time of the year. And also, it's available right now on Netflix, so if you're looking for a new movie, what could be easier than kind of cracking up Netflix? A few clicks later, you're watching a brand new movie. So, why not talk about it? The star here is Benedict Cumberbatch, again, getting a lot of Oscar buzz. He plays a really cruel cowboy who's making life miserable for his brother, who's played by the great Jesse Plemons. And if you don't know Jesse Plemons, the name, you've seen him a million different places. He's all over. He's a really excellent actor. Well, when Jesse's character falls in love with a widow, and that's played by his real-life fiance, Kirsten Dunst, his grumpy brother gets in the way of the two. And that's just one of the complications in the story, which is told in a very methodical way, in a very cautious way. This is not a typical Western, even though it's got all the trappings of a Western. The screenplay in question is good, and it really kind of gently ladles out the drama. There's kind of a lot of things you have to pay attention to here, including some of the dialogue early in the movie, just kind of a, uh, I don't want to say it's a spoiler alert, but just heads up, what's spoken in the first maybe two or three minutes of the movie really does matter, especially with the opening narration. Now, I liked The Power of the Dog. It was a very good film. But I don't think it's an Oscar-worthy film, at least on the Beck's picture front. But that's where we are today. I just think movies aren't as good as they used to be. I know that's kind of an cliche and old man shaking his fist at the clouds. But I really do think it's just the films aren't as high quality as they were maybe five, ten years ago even. So you have a solid, solid movie like The Power of the Dog, and suddenly it's in serious Oscar consideration. So... In a way, that's a conversation for another day, sort of the, the, the sorry state of movies. But for now, if you have Netflix, if you're at home and you don't want to go to the theaters, The Power of the Dog is a good movie. It's well worth your time. Steven Cruiser wears more than one hat these days. You can find him on PJ Media. He's a regular contributor there. He's also a very hardworking stand-up comedian. He's been a comic for quite some time now. And he leans to the right. But if you go see him in concert or see him on a, on a comedy club, you may not recognize that directly. He doesn't do a lot of political material in his stand-up routine. And in our conversation coming up in a minute, he'll explain why. But 
you know, it's important that he's able to say what he wants to say, which is one of the reasons why he's starting an unwoke comedy tour. He wants to tell the jokes that he wants to tell because they're jokes, they're funny, or maybe they're potentially funny. And not every joke is a home run. Sometimes you have to kind of experiment a bit to kind of find that right formula, that right mix of words and, and intonations that makes a joke so good. That's how the game works, except now we're not allowed to play that game quite like you did back in the day. And Stephen shares more about his experiences on the road, talks about the future of comedy, much more in this conversation. And as Borat might say, please do enjoy. Stephen, thanks for joining the show. You are part of something you've called the Unwoke Comedy Tour. And I, I, a lot of things are being evoked in my head when I think about that, that phrase. But just kind of break it down for the listener. What does that exactly mean from a comedy point of view? Well, my buddy, a comedian who I first met when we were doing shows entertaining the troops in the South Pacific a long time ago, Kevin Downey Jr., uh, I've been writing for PJ Media for a very long time. He's been writing there for about five months now, and we wanted to go back on the road for a while. We're both conservative comics, but we're not political comics. We don't do a lot of politics on stage. But we want to take this tour to places that do have a lot of conservatives, red states, flyover country, places that want some entertainment, where they know they're not going to have to cringe their way through a bunch of leftist garbage while they're watching. Mm. Uh, that's, that's pretty much the, that's as quick, as much of an elevator pitch as I can give you for that. Sure. You know, it almost sounds like uh, what John Nolte at Breitbart used to call the sucker punch. When you're watching a movie, a TV show, you fear it's coming. It's likely coming. But when you go to your show, you're not going to get that sucker punch. It's going to directly insult your values or who you vote for. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. I mean, we, I, you know, Kevin does zero politics on stage. I weave some sociopolitical stuff in a little bit here and there, but it's mostly just fun. And then they know, you know, they know who we are. There are a lot of people coming to shows who, in, the la in recent years, who know me through my writing at PJ, which is weird. And they think they're going to get a political comic and they're surprised to find they aren't. <laughs> Uh, I don't do political comedy because political comedy is hard to do. There have been like three people in history who have done it well. And one of them just died. Mort <laughs> Saul. <laughs> I thought you say Norm MacDonald so too, perhaps, but. Norm, but he... Norm, did, some, Norm did some stuff there, mm -hmm. but Norm was so goofy, it really offset it. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, Norm, Norm wouldn't do, but I'm talking about people who just do political humor. That's not easy. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, and, it's, and most people aren't good at it. And you've got all of these comics out there right now thinking they're good at it. You've got late night talk show hosts thinking they're good at it, and they're not. Well, that's a <laughs> that's an understatement. You know, I, I recently watched a video with Adam Carolla, and he had a joke I thought was very funny, and it was definitely unwoke, and it was definitely something you couldn't say in a traditional setting. I'm not, I, don't, I want to share it with you to get your thoughts because I think it may tie into what you're doing as well. He said, "You know, I'm not a racist." but I'm on the spectrum. And I thought that was so funny. It was sort of <laughs> self-deprecating. It was layered. It's the kind of joke you have to kind of really think about a little bit. And it also kind of speaks to our times where he's basically saying, I might say a joke that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable because I want to speak to a larger observational truth. So bear with me. I, any thoughts on that? Or even conversely, maybe you can share something that you talk about on stage that is not really political but is in a way unwoke. Well, it's a hilarious joke, first of all. Uh, well, well written, well done, Adam. Uh, I have honestly, throughout my entire career, and I'm almost 40 years into this stand-up gig now, um, I have always preferred to do the kind of humor that people, that made people laugh at things they didn't want to laugh at. I always thought that was the greatest challenge. Mm -hmm. um, you make them squirm in their seats and they're going, God, but he's funny. Um, <laughs> And, and so I've always tried to do that. And that was long before political correctness, long before wokeness. I, it's not like I'm consciously out there trying to say unwoke or offensive things. It's just that now that I've been told I can't, I've got that natural American <laughs> knee jerk. Well, no, you can't tell me what I can't do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to go out there with no holds barred on subject matter. I'm not going to worry about somebody trying to cancel me. I'm going to talk. I, you know, I'm going to talk about sex and women and, and, you know, and, and whatever. I'm not, I'm not going to have it in the forefront of my mind that I might be saying something for which I would later have to apologize. That's, and and mm -hmm. it's the subject matter we're dealing with, it's a lot of the unwoke stuff because Kevin and I have a podcast that we do for PJ behind the paywall where we just come up with like, I, you know, if you want me to share any of it, but um, mm -hmm. 
I will. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how tame we're being for your audience. You know, I think profanities I might beep out, but you can just say them. So don't worry about that. This is not profanity, but it is sexist. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so Kevin and I were talking about Ilhan Omar late, late last week and her latest thing and everything. And then Kevin at the end, he said, let me ask you a question. I said, what? And he said, would you do Ilhan Omar? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, she's hot. That's the kind of stuff Kevin and I do. I'm like, I see, you got to be honest. I'm a man. Um, I, I think, then, you know, a lot of our audience didn't get that at first. They're going to come out, really? And we're going, like, no, we meant that. I mean, she's a, a very attractive woman. AOC is gorgeous. I mean, let's. Yeah, she is. We, I, in a deny that. I'm there. <laughs> um, and you know, if 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 we were, you know, if if I was a female podcaster and you were a female comic, and we talked about Brad Pitt in such a fashion, who cares? Like, yeah. why does that matter? We're actually we're saying something positive, saying this person is attractive. I'm attracted to them, and I don't care what their political philosophy is. That in, in a sort of a, a a sexual state, I would kind of go there. And that doesn't seem outrageous, but we're kind of in this whole topsy-turvy world. We even have to tiptoe on something like that, which seems rather basic. Well, I don't buy a lot of the woke stuff or the woke premises anyway. Um, you know, going back to the Breitbart days, I like to reject the premises mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I don't buy, I, I, for a moment, this whole notion that a fully realized modern American woman doesn't like to be objectified. I don't buy it at all. We're hardwired in certain ways. And I have never met a woman, liberal or conservative, who didn't like me telling her that she looked good, who didn't like knowing that I was looking at her and appreciating the way she looked. I just, I've never bought that. I think it's a bunch of, I, I think it's a bunch of angry claptrap that gets put in, in young women's heads too early now. And they think they have to be angry every time a man says something nice to them. Well, also, I think it's all context. You know, if you're walking in the street and a construction worker says something vulgar and leering and does the whistle, it's kind of gross. But if you meet someone in the street and they say, you look beautiful today, or that's a great dress, wildly different. And and I think think lumping them together seems inappropriate. Well, yeah, the whistling thing. I, honestly, I have never heard a man do a cat call in my entire life. <laughs> and I'm not young. You, you hear about it, but I have never heard a man any – and I've walked – I've, I've spent – I've spent my fair amount of time in New York City walking around the streets of Manhattan and, you know, I've lived in Los Angeles most of my time. I've never heard a guy do a cat call. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit here. You're a right of center person. Your act is is not political per se, but in a way that doesn't matter in that if you have that brand, that persona, it could impact you. Have you been discriminated against in certain ways? Either clubs won't accept you, a fellow comedian won't work with you, or have things been pretty chill over the years through your career? Through your career? I'll give you a few quick examples. I sure. wouldn't say it's overwhelming. You're not, it's, this isn't a woe is me tale, mm-hmm. but it does happen because I've always been conservative. I never had a wandering liberal phase in my life, and I've always been out about it. Everyone in standup has always known that I'm a Republican, that I'm a Republican activist, um, and that I'm that I've always been conservative, so it's never been a secret. Uh, I was doing a comedy festival in New York about nine years ago, I think, and I was given all my dates for the thing. And this was when uh, Red Eye was on Fox News, and I used to be on Red Eye frequently. And one of the venue owners found out that I was on Red Eye and canceled me mm-hmm. because they were gay. And they said, well, we don't want him on because he's anti-gay, which I'm not, by the way. But they did that based solely on the fact that they knew that I was a frequent guest on Red Eye. And that's um, it. <laughs> that's all I needed. I'm, I'm currently visiting my sister in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There's a club here that I always loved doing. I bring in, I'm related to three quarters of the state of Michigan. <laughs> and my sister married into a Michigan family. So when I perform here, I bring in my brother-in-law's family and my family. Um, this guy does well. He doesn't have to get me a hotel room here. Um, he gets he gets me filling his seats and everything. He has he's been jerking me around for like four years now because he's ultra ultra lib, and you know the country has gone a little, you know, a little catty when it comes to <laughs> politics lately. And uh, same thing with Kevin. Kevin used to play here all the time too, and he's not giving him gigs either so i know that's political and my favorite club in america is zany's in chicago and 
I used to be a regular headliner there. I loved being there. It was a great club and everything. And again, as soon as I started being on red eye all the time, boom, dried up, I'm done. I was, <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll get you back on, but <laughs> no, nothing ever. Yeah. And the, and the booker there has been the same booker for 30 years and he's notoriously leftist. That's a shame. It's a shame. Uh, you know, we, this is the question I always ask comedians and I, I, I sense there's a real fear going on fear a bit what you're facing uh, as far as discrimination, things like that for daring to kind of be on one side against the other. Do you, do you talk to fellow comedians? Are they, are they uh, maybe shaping their act to be less offensive? Are they doing certain things to kind of protect their own careers? And again, it's brave to be bold and it's brave to be open, but I get it. If you're trying to put food on the table and you think you can do a certain minor thing to ensure that keeps on happening, I, I, you know, I don't want to judge that person, but any, any comments about that? Maybe just, you know, stories from fellow comedians who are feeling something similar going on with their careers. Well, the, the perspective for me and my friends is a little different because we're all older. Um, we've been at it a while now. Uh, Kevin and I have talked about this. If we were younger comics trying to get on television and that was the be all and end all and the end game, we would have to adjust a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you would have to like bow to the woke gods and make sure that happened. Uh, one of my friends, one of my best friends in standup is notoriously liberal and she almost, they, they tried to cancel her two years ago. <laughs> That's how bad it's gotten. Yeah. Um, they tried to paint her as like some flaming racist. Some young comic on Facebook tried to do it to her. And so she felt the sting of it firsthand. But so for us older people, one of the reasons we're doing this tour is because we're going to bring it to places where we don't have to worry about somebody going out and complaining and trying to cancel us. You know, we're taking this to red states. We're taking it to our people, if you will. Um, but by the way, if you know anyone in New York or LA who wants to hire us, we'll still go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity. Hell, I used to play Ann Arbor. This city is rife with commies. Okay, <laughs> so it's it's uh it's so I'm not altering that much. What do I? Okay, no. What we are altering is where we'll work greatly. I mean, we're we're ruling out a lot of stuff these days. Mm -hmm. But it's not just because of the woke. It's because you can't really book. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording. You can't really book far in advance in the blue stays because you never know what's going to shut down next week yeah i'm in denver and uh, we just got our masks back a couple couple weeks ago and so we don't know what that's going to entail if that's going to carry on to the new year who knows what's going on it certainly won't be based on science factor reason so it is it is kind of a crapshoot when it comes to that there, there have been a couple of things happening in recent weeks that have given me a little bit of hope that the the woke situation may be sort of I don't want to say crumbling but what you know there's some cracks in the, in the wall and that's Dave Chappelle. Netflix mostly stood by him. Netflix is yeah. going to work with him again. Bill Maher is on a, a one-person crusade against woke, and he's doing it on a platform where usually you don't hear that, HBO. Do you sense a pendulum shift, or are we still not quite there yet? Because there's, there's still a lot of energy in the woke side. Again, that's an age demographic thing. You know, The younger people are more than willing to just write Bill Maher off now. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't understand his value and what he's done. One of the things Bill Moore always did that very few people know about is even back in the politically incorrect days, he always made sure he had at least one conservative writer on his writing staff. Um, oh, he's always been a flaming lib, but he always made sure he had one writer, one conservative on his staff. And, uh, and he, you know, he's this guy who doesn't adhere completely to the orthodoxy. And when he thinks his, his own side needs to be called out, he'll call them out. And the young people on social media savage him every time he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's not going to hurt him. He's he's a franchise at HBO, and he does have a wonderful platform for that. And the stuff he said recently about Chappelle and, you know, stop saying transphobia because it's not transphobia. Stop in the wokeism. That was wonderful. And Bill, when he goes on those things, very erudite, wonderful to listen to. Chappelle, um, the one thing that dismayed me about Netflix now, or the, the whole thing, is that you know, all of those people that were the initiated the rage against Chappelle have now either left Netflix or admitted they were wrong, and that's gotten almost no press. Yeah, yeah. Um, the narrative's in play, so it's it's just. You know. I, I am grateful that he didn't that he didn't apologize because there have been some comics who made their who made their fame as being super edgy and willing to say anything who have now join the church of woke like sarah silverman mark Myron so, is a great example too by the way mark mark yeah. um 
who I met on my very first road trip, uh, <laughs> my first real road trip, actually. Uh, uh, Marin Silver, Sarah Silverman, I don't know if you've ever seen her live, was haven't. one of the most offensive yet screamingly funny comedians I've ever seen. And I mean, she said some harsh stuff. And now she's like, well, no, I wish I hadn't. And one thing I'll never do is apologize for old jokes. I'm going to apologize for what 25-year-old me said? No. <laughs> the only thing that embarrasses me about my old jokes is that they were crappy jokes. <laughs> well, and also, I, I think part, write a joke <laughs> part of what it means to be a comedian, and you're the, you're the comedian, I'm not, but this is what I sense, is that you go on the road, you're on stage. You tell a joke, and maybe it gets a, a medium response. And then the next night, you tweak it. You maybe change the words a little bit. You change the inflection. You add something new to it, and it gets a bigger laugh. And then in two weeks, you've kind of fine-tuned that joke to the point where it's a killer. And you're going you're gonna to mention every joke every time you can. And you can't have that evolution if the first version of it is problematic or if the first version isn't a isn't a finished product because it could be a little rough on the edges and could upset a few people and i think that's what you're taking away from comedians with this whole woke movement yeah and and you know it also i think it's in their heads all the time right now too and you can't have anything in your head that's not the act when you're on stage you can't have a sensor in your head mm -hmm. You, you have to go, go up there and do whatever it is that you do, and you can't, can't keep thinking like, oh, is this going to cross the line? Is this going to cross the line? Is this going to cross the line? I think um, that comedians should cross the line. I think that, that that's our function here. We're the last line of defense for the First Amendment. I truly believe that, and I don't have a grandiose view of anything else about stand-up, but we're the ones who are supposed to go out and offend. And I've been saying it a lot lately. I said, Lenny Bruce didn't keep going to jail for dropping F-bombs so that I could tiptoe around a bunch of 20-year-old Twitter nags, you know? Yeah, that's, the, that's the, not why I'm here. The Lenny Bruce situation, I mean, the more you study him, the more you read about what he went through, and the more you realize the, the barriers he broke down with his work. And he's certainly a flawed individual, and, and, and a lot of his humor doesn't stand up because it's dated. But by gosh, I mean, if you think about what he suffered and what comedians today are just willing to kind of lay down and, and not even face any brickbats about it, it, it really is stunning. And it's, I wish everyone he, would he kind had of look undercover, back that. undercover cops coming to every show of his waiting for him to cuss. <laughs> That's right. That's how bad it was. Yeah. And he would go, Mort Saul, if you want me to tell you an old comedian story that I just heard. Sure. <laughs> Mort Saul just died a few weeks ago. The last, one of the last great political humorists. And both what he and Lenny did were very different. If you know, if you're a modern day comedy fan and you go watch them on YouTube, it's different. It's slower. It's storytelling. It's not set up punch. And you're gonna think, well, that's not comedy. Well, it was comedy then. It was very edgy too, because most people were like Henny Youngman telling ethnic jokes at the time. Um, so Morton Lenny were working this club in L.A. that they worked a lot, and there were two rooms upstairs and downstairs. And Lenny was the more famous one, so he was in the bigger room, and he gets. He gets hauled off to jail for dropping an F-bomb one night. <laughs> um, and they used to get paid every night in cash. And they were being paid fairly well. And he came, he come to, he came to Mort and he said, okay, look, because the showtimes were staggered. So he asked Mort if he could go upstairs and do his spots and then come back downstairs and do his own spots and then, and then collect Lenny's money and then use that to bail him out of jail. Oh, my gosh. Night. And Mort's got this smile on his face. And he pauses and he said, we'd done this before. <laughs> and so... It was so frequent that they, <laughs> this thing worked out. But then Mort's bouncing back and forth. And at the end of the night, um, some drunk, after Mort's done with his own show downstairs, some drunk comes up to him and goes, hey, there's some guy upstairs doing your act. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. was an old, great old comedy story. I mean, but the way Mort said, we'd done this before. <laughs> you know Lenny the was getting hauled to jail so often, they had a little thing worked out so they could get Lenny's money. Ah, oh, they had a routine. Well, Stephen, I, I know I typically like to kind of give the plug at the end of the conversation, but it looks like it's a little bit in flux. So how can people find you in the next few weeks? What's the best way to describe the Unwell Comedy Tour and how it's going to unfold? We're working on moving it into theaters and perhaps some comedy clubs. And we're going to like, basically, we're going to carve out a big round thing away from the coasts. And, you know, we'll get to Texas, of course. We'll get to Florida. Uh, Arizona, my native Arizona, a little purplish now, but I got a couple places there I think we're going to be. And, and then we're, yeah, we're, 
We've got some grand plans for this. I don't want to go bore you with all the details, but that's the whole thing for next year. If we if we can get on the road a lot next year, I'll be happy. I haven't been on the road a lot in a long time, and I'm kind of getting the itch again. Excellent. Well, Stephen, we appreciate your help here, uh, kind of sharing your stories, and also the fact that you're telling jokes that are just jokes and not having any guardrails to them. That really does matter in 2021 as we head into 2022. Thank you so much for joining the show, and we will talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Christian. Had a blast. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I think this one quote from film critic Larry Maltman really sums up his life's work, if not just his attitude in general. Here it is. And when I slog through a terrible movie... I console myself with the knowledge that at least I never have to see it again. I love that. That isn't the glasses-half-full approach. It's, boy, this water's delicious, and there's just so much of it. And that's Leonard Maltin. I grew up watching him on uh, Entertainment Tonight for years and years. I think he had about a 30-year run, which is quite remarkable, especially in sort of the topsy-turvy world of Hollywood entertainment, movie criticism for sure. That's a, that's a bold statement of how good he was and how solid he was. And, you know, over the years, I never really associated him with politics. I never quite thought about him as a liberal, a conservative, something in between. He just loved movies, and he doesn't bludgeon readers with his views. I don't know what they are. He could be Tucker Carlson. He could be Mitchell Maddow. I just don't know. He really keeps the focus on the movies themselves. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it worth your time? He's a pure movie fan. And one of the things I read about in his new memoir, Starstruck, is that he started writing about films at a very early age. We're talking early teens here. I had no idea. He's kind of, <laughs> I don't know if he uses the word or it just kind of came to mind, but I was reading the book as chutzpah. This kid had chutzpah. He was writing for magazines as a teenager, kind of, I don't want to say hiding his age per se, but maybe not mentioning the fact that he was about 15 or 16 at the time. And he got published. Good for him, but it was just the beginning of a pretty remarkable career. Now, Star Trek is certainly a mash note to Hollywood, but there are some edgier moments here, and some of the stars he met were a little bit cranky and crusty at times, and part of the reason why he is as good as he is at what he does is he kind of was able to kind of wear them down, connect with them on a certain level, and that's good from a publicity point of view, but more importantly, you get better stories out of the big stars that way. If you kind of win over their, their confidence, you get them to trust you, they will open up more. It'll be a much better conversation, a much better interview. And you see a lot of the results of that in his new book. Now, of course, this podcast leans to the right. I think the title is kind of a giveaway. But I love putting politics aside now and then, especially when we're talking movies and with a real movie lover like Leonard Maltin. I had a blast talking to him, and I hope you feel the same way about the conversation up ahead. Leonard, you've been a fixture in the lives of movie fans like me for decades. But after reading that book, I didn't realize that you started writing about film and covering film at such a young age. Uh, for those who haven't read the book quite yet, just share a little bit about that part of your journey. You were just a preteen and a teenager doing some amazing stuff and really kind of going in places where you should have waited and you just had the chutzpah to do it. I, I, I love it. it talk, just kind of give us maybe a glimpse of that of that moment in your early career and and. Were there any people saying you couldn't do it or or were your family and friends encouraged you to do that? Well, my family couldn't have been more encouraging. Great. Uh, They didn't steer me in this direction. Uh, I I, I sort of devised that on my my own. (laughs) When I was in the fifth grade, a friend and I started uh, uh, issuing a biweekly publication. And uh, our first issue had three copies because there was one original and two carbon copies <laughs> that we circulated among our classmates. And, and then we, uh, we went on from there. And as my interest in movie history developed and uh, blossomed, that was more and more what I wanted to write about. Oh, and uh, when I was 13, I found out there was a network of what they used to call fanzines. Today it would be, you know, websites or blogs or something like that. Uh, and I wanted in, 
<laughs> so not only did I continue uh, expanding what I was doing, but I offered my services to these uh, far-flung magazines and there was no money involved. This was all labor of love for everyone involved. I, I just didn't tell them I was 13 years old. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the guy who published a magazine called The Eight Millimeter Collector was a furniture dealer in Indiana, PA, who you know wanted to be in touch with other silent film buffs. And the other guy in Vancouver uh, said, well, I'm 19. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me how old you are. I like the article you wrote. Yeah. So I saw my name in print in something other than what I wrote or I published myself uh, at that age. And uh, yes, I, I sort of marvel at my own books <laughs> looking back. But you, no, no one discouraged me. Great, great. No one discouraged me. And, and uh, which is one reason that I kept going yeah. is that I, you know, I approached different people for interviews and uh, I, I met very kind, very generous people. Over the years, I'm sure you've kind of tweaked the formula of how do you approach a celebrity? How do you ingratiate themselves, yourself with them? It, it's the best way to get the best stories, the best quotes out of them. You want to make sure you connect with them, and then they open up. Talk a little bit of how you do that, because I've struggled with that at times. And sometimes I, I think I'm successful, sometimes I'm not, but obviously you've mastered that art. How do you approach a star of significant consequence and, and make sure that he or she really does want to open up to you? Well, the first thing is uh, I try to keep my cool, which is sometimes, you know, harder than others. <laughs> uh, I, I try not to show that I'm awestruck or, you know, or tongue-tied in any way. And sometimes I try to think of a good opening line, uh, you know, something that will uh, reveal, you know, that I know an obscure movie that they made, that they may be fond of, but wasn't a hit. I've used that angle more than once. Uh, but then I, I was watching Larry King. Years ago, he used to have a late night show on the weekends where he would talk to, uh, you know, not a newcomer, but a, someone who'd been around for a while. I watched him with Michael Crawford one night uh, after he had gained you know, tremendous fame as the Phantom of the Opera on stage. And Larry, you know, pr prided himself on never doing any preparation. <laughs> I do no prep, he said, almost <laughs> proudly. And what resulted from that was he asked very basic fundamental questions that you or I would discard as being, you know, too unsophisticated. But he got results. He said to Michael Crawford, well, you know, what was your first break? You know, and Michael Crawford wasn't insulted. He told him the answer. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you, you twist yourself in a pretzel when you don't really have to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just, just asking something uh, with sincerity, you know, yeah. uh, is enough. You know, the book talks a lot about how you were able to negotiate uh, star interviews and certainly was more challenging as a younger person. But then when you were established, you still had to kind of, there are levels in the negotiation, working with the PR people. I'm curious how that's changed over time. Are, are artists today more guarded because they, they fear the gotcha journalism? Are they more open? Is it sort of a combination? How have you found the, the stars themselves as opposed to the sort of the, 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 the great stars of the past? Well, um, the, the, the first thing I, I, I learned, one of the first key lessons I learned was try to get directly to them and not have to go through their intermediaries. Mm -hmm. I understand why they have those intermediaries. You know, they, they, they need some level of protection, you know, from the, the from the great unwashed. But uh, I, I find that if you get a chance to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, that usually works. Mm -hmm. and, and if, and if you look them straight in the eye and, you know, and, and, and show genuine interest, uh, that's all it takes. That hasn't changed over the years. It's interesting. I interviewed uh, a singer a while back. I think it was Diana Krall. And I had yeah. done some research for her. And I wasn't super familiar, but I did enough to kind of negotiate the conversation. But the interviewer before me was so clueless and so hapless, I ended up shining because I, at least I had done some due diligence behind the scenes. But I've, uh, had, I've had that happen too. <laughs> I, was on, I was on the press junket for Oliver Stone's movie, Nixon. And Anthony Hopkins uh, 
had nailed my, the, the, the young woman who preceded me who hadn't seen the movie. Oh. And he, he figured that out. <laughs> and so I guess in contrast, <laughs> I, I must have looked like a genius right. in contrast to that. At least I'd seen the movie. That's right. The, the very basics. You know, one of the things I like about Starstruck so much is it, it kind of triggered a lot of nostalgic memories for me growing up, experiencing TV, watching sort of the evolution of film and, and all the kind of classic stories. But looking at the landscape today, television can be wonderful. Uh, you know, the, the budgets are often the same, if not more than a, than a motion picture. The actors, some of our best actors are happy to work in television it seems like the sort of the, the, the content model is, is evolving. I'm kind of curious, where do you see movies heading, you know, down the short road? Is, is, it, is it sort of, are they butting heads with each other? Is it sort of a, an embarrassment of riches in a way? It is an embarrassment of riches. I mean, I, I, when I was a kid, I was a TV junkie. I watched everything, <laughs> everything that interested me. Uh, and um, today, television is, is, as you say, on a very high high plateau, uh, almost, if not absolutely the equal of, of what's being done for movies. Sometimes they surpass what you can do in movies because the, the TV is willing to engage in adult content and uh, you know mature and nuanced storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't... Uh, uh, you know, and I, during the pandemic, like lots of other people, have had time to watch more television <laughs> and, and taken in a lot, of, a lot of wonderful stuff that I would have missed otherwise. Uh, you know, and and uh, so I now have a bigger appetite and a broader perspective. And uh, uh, so I, too, have gone through a transition, as I suspect many other viewers have. Yeah. Is there anything you've seen in recent months that you could recommend? Maybe something less obvious or something that's been under the radar, but you discovered it and really champion it? Well, there was a six-episode series called The Chair with Sandra Oh mm -hmm. and Mark Duplass and uh, a lot of other good people about the, the uh, jockeying for position at an, at an old-line uh, old uh, university. Mm -hmm like a, a junior Ivy League university. And I really like that. I don't know if they're planning to do more, but uh, my wife and I got hooked on that show. Gotcha. The Chair. That's on Netflix it right now. It refers to the chair of an English department. One of the things I loved about Starstruck, it, it actually reminded me of my youth, was when I was a kid, I was a big monkeys fan. I had discovered the reruns and I wanted to buy all the mm -hmm. albums, but you couldn't get them. They were out of print. So I had to hunt through flea markets and garage sales. It was mm -hmm. a real chase. And part of what you've done over the years is really hunt down classic TV shows, content that's been buried. And I, I, there's something that I, I feel like there's so much content now that we can get either through eBay or maybe just Google searches or just uh, various platforms share them. Is it a little less fun when the hunt is gone, when there, where you, you can kind of get access to classic material more easily than ever before? I, I feel like something's lost there, even though it's technically an improvement. Uh, well, yes, I share your feelings on that, but um, I wouldn't want to put impediments in my way <laughs> <laughs> deliberately. Uh -huh. I mean, I used to have to, when I was in junior high school, I would force myself to go to sleep early on a school night and set the alarm for like 2.30 in the morning to wake up, to go into the uh, next room from my bedroom and not wake up my parents in the process and watch 20th Century with John Barrymore and Carol mm -hmm. Lombard, because that was the only way I could get to see it. <laughs> and then I'd try to go back to sleep and wake to function in class the next day. Okay. I mean, you know, that that's the kind of silliness that, uh, uh, you know, that was not atypical in those days. And uh, uh, I, I wouldn't wish that back on, <laughs> on, on my agenda, but... Uh, uh, Yes, the thrill of the chase was definitely uh, an impetus yes. in those days. <laughs> I like and, that story. Uh, access is, is, is not a bad thing. Gotcha. Uh, you know, look at, at Hollywood today. It's much more political. The stars are more outspoken. If mm -hmm. you follow some of them on, on social media, they, they throw some pretty sharp elbows. It's sort of what you do on Twitter. And you've always been a gentleman about Hollywood. You've been a fan. You've been courteous. 
you've always stayed above that fray. Is is it hard to do that today just beca- just because of the tone of the industry or do you kind of take it as a point of pride? I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, I feel like the Hollywood of today is different than in the past and in many, many ways, creatively, of course, but the tone just seems a little bit different as well. And I'm just kind of curious how you approach that and how you navigate that. Well, carefully <laughs> is the answer. And there's no... There's no absolute rule for what to do, what not to do. Mm-hmm. I, I follow the advice of uh, my daughter, uh, Jessie, who, who is my advisor on all things social media. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we agree that uh, uh, unless forced to, we don't engage. Mm-hmm. We just don't get involved in any uh, you know, political scrap of any kind. Uh, and because that's not what we're interested in. That's not what we want our listeners or readers to be interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been watching the Oscars for years like you have, obviously. It doesn't seem as special, as magical to me as it once did. I know the ratings are down and there are different reasons. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, if they if they were smart enough to hire you as a consultant, a, a an executive producer on the show, would you change anything? Was there anything you would like to kind of maybe tweak about the ceremony that you think might bring back some of that luster? Assuming it's gone, I, you may disagree. Well, no, some of the luster has gone for, for very practical, uh, uh, tangible reasons. Mm-hmm. At, at one time, you never saw those stars except on the Oscars. Yeah, that's really that's really a huge component you know, here. Uh, and, and, and not reading a script, but being themselves. You know, uh, Clint Eastwood uh, didn't turn up on talk shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but you, you would see him at the Oscars. Uh, Cary Grant, you'd see him at the Oscars. Uh, a lot of people who did not reveal themselves out of character turned up once a year uh, at the Academy Awards uh, uh, broadcast. And that's why so Jack that Nicholson was, was so special to me because I, I never saw Jack anywhere except front row of the Oscars. It was, it was, and exactly. I, I, I looked exactly. forward to it. And it meant something to see him sitting there. Mm-hmm. It sure did. And, you know, and uh, so we, we can't quite turn the clock back on that, but um, I think. I don't, I don't know how I would, how I would improve. Yeah. You know, the the problem is I care about the Oscars. Mm -hmm. I care about who wins best cinematographer. You can't get Joe average to get to acquire interest in things like that. And that's one of the problems that they face. Yeah. That's a challenge. Leonard, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about one chapter in your book that jumped out at me. It's about a character actor who maybe people don't know. I'm sure they know his face, James Karen. And yes. uh, I know you're friends with him for years. But in a way, I, I actually, I grew up on Long Island. I used to see him. I forget that it was a supermarket chain he used to. Pathmark. Yes, Pathmark. Exactly. I knew him from that as well. And, I, you know, I've you've seen him over $1.29 this week. <laughs> but I think that you're, you're, you're owed to him and kind of capturing his career really sums up starstruck in a way because he wasn't a superstar. He wasn't Betty Davis, who you met and got the great stories in the book. Just talk a little bit about him and his career and why, why you included it. It it felt special to me. And I, I think if you want to kind of capture what this book is about, I think that in a way digs into it. Well, he, uh, he was ubiquitous as the pathmark man. Uh, he, he was not just on one local TV station in New York. He was on all of them uh, doing those commercials. Uh, but it turns out that he had a very deep uh, and long career in the theater. And then eventually on television and in movies. He's the guy who sells the family that haunted house in Poltergeist. He's Jane Fonda's boss in the China Syndrome. Uh, uh, he... he, he Covered a lot of ground. Yeah, At did. one point, my wife and I decided if, if Jimmy didn't know you, you didn't exist. <laughs> he was a very, very social animal. And uh, when he had a scare and thought he was dying, he wanted me to write his obit. So his wife put me in touch with people who, who he cared about him. George Clooney, Morgan Freeman, Oliver Stone. And they all came through with wonderful responses that I used in the obit, which he then got to read because he'd been misdiagnosed and wasn't dying. <laughs> he lived for, he lived well for another couple of years and to, to the age of 94. He, um, he, he spent his life 
uh, as an actor and loved the company of his fellow actors and also became an acolyte to Buster Keaton in his later years and, and, and then to Buster's widow, Eleanor. Um, he, he's just a, a charming, delightful guy and uh, full of stories and eager to share them. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what more I can say about him, except that I, I feel very, very lucky to have had his friendship. Well, you know, I think the fact that you knew him, you celebrate him, sets you apart from most film writers who might look past him thinking for the, I need to talk about the Brad Pitts of the world, the, the, the Cary Grants, but the, I think what captures you and your love for movies is that you appreciate someone who worked so hard like he did and also the greats as well. Leonard, thank you so much for your time. Of course, the book is Starstruck. Please go out and get it right now. It's a wonderful memoir. It's sweet. It's funny. There are so many great stories. We have just scratched the surface here, but trust me, there's a lot more in the book. And uh, if you're a movie fan, it's, it's, it's a must-buy, especially for the holidays. And uh, I really do appreciate your work. Keep being a gentleman. I really do appreciate it. I, I know sometimes even I get too, too much in the fray when it comes to the Hollywood politics, and it's nice to have someone like you who reminds us what it's all about. It's about entertainment and movies and having a wonderful time and shared memories. So, Leonard, all the best. Well, th those, those words are very meaningful to me, and, uh, and I, I'm blushing right now. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a podcast, but we will assume you are being completely accurate. <laughs> Thank you, Leonard. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. That's another writer on Hollywood in the books. Thank you for listening. The show is really starting to catch on, and I'm super grateful for that. But if you don't mind, if you could leave a five-star review on the all and mighty powerful iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Have a great week. Get that Christmas shopping done. And we'll talk again next time. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. Hey.